So I'm human, and uh, that means that I understand what it's like uh, to be scared. I think that's one of the universal human experiences. How many of you are surprised that I am human? How many of you are surprised that I understand what it's like to be scared? Yeah, plenty of things to be scared of in life. Uh, everybody is scared in life. We are scared of failure. We're scared of pain. We're scared of death. We have financial fear. We have physical fear sometimes. A lot of us have medical fears uh, with respect to ourselves or our loved ones. We are scared of being alone oftentimes. That's a pretty common human experience. We are scared of losing relationships that matter to us. We are scared of rejection and never having the sorts of relationships that will matter most to us. We are scared of losing what we have, and we are scared of never getting what we want. Can anybody relate so far? Give me an amen. Give me a chihu or something. Uh, I think that as a general rule, fear should be met with courage. And I think when fear is met with courage, creative things can happen. Uh, fear could thereby result in the best coming out of us, the way that we confront fear. Uh, often flushes the best out of us if we do it with a great deal of courage. Another word for courage is faith. But of course, the way that we meet fear might also lead to desperation, anger, and outrage, and things that are not necessarily as creative and helpful. We have a saying around blue water, fear is the start of every bad thing. Occasionally, if you meet it with faith, it can ultimately be the start of good things. But fear is the start of every bad thing, and that I think that's the enemy's strategy against us. He gets us to be afraid of something, and then we become malleable. Then he can influence us, because fear can be such a dominating emotion in our lives. What he does is he tries to take our fear, and he adds to it a sense of disempowerment. Fear plus disempowerment equals damage, destruction, and sin every time. If he can take your fear and with it give you a sense of disempowerment, well, I can't do anything about this. You know, then what you'll do is you'll start reaching for desperate, damaging, wrong solutions. In general, I think that's the strategy of the dark side, to find our fears, flush them out, and then put disempowerment alongside. Uh, and that has been uh, the, uh, the overwhelming strategy, the dominant strategy of, of chaos uh, ever since uh, the beginning. But, uh, but I've got good news about that. And the good news is that I, and by I, I mean we, I mean all who follow Jesus, all who try to live godly, empowered lives in the world, we have, we have a solution. We, we're it. That is what makes us salt and light in the world. Here's a story about Jesus at the beginning of his ministry when he was trying to announce what he was about. Uh, a few good things and public things that happened in his life, and then we pick up the story in Luke chapter 4. It's in your programs. It's going to be up here on the big screen. You can follow along. Jesus went to Nazareth which is hometown, uh, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. He essentially went into church, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. Uh, it was his 90-second testimony, if you will. Uh, and he stood up to, to give it. 
and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. A very prophetic Old Testament book, had a lot of predictions about the future and particularly about the coming of the Messiah. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Those of you who are feeling scared and disempowered, I got some good news for you. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's all good. It's good news. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Why? Because he read from the, the prophet Isaiah? No, because he did it with attitude and authority, I'm sure. He's like, wow, that dude is really claiming that. What's going on here? Who, who exactly is this guy? What does he understand? And he began by saying to them, yeah, that's right. Today, that scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Uh-huh. This is a great opening sermon. Very proclamatory and filled with good news, and particularly good news with respect to those who are most afraid and disempowered in the world. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is our calling, right? Because when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to a purpose. He calls us to be salt and light. He calls us to be ministers like him. That is gospel message 101. And whether you've thought about it or not, I think here is a core truth of what it means to follow Christ in this world. We've got to be really, really good at discipling people who feel scared and disempowered. We've got to be really good at discipling the disempowered. If we don't have answers for people who feel disempowered in the world, then we don't get it. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, in specific, we're just going to talk about what to do about it. Let's start with review time. Thanks for that positive upbuilding attitude. This is, we've been talking about, you know, purpose and discipling for uh, about 10 weeks now. Uh, here's how I would lump it together. Uh, number one, we are all called to a purpose. And if you follow that purpose, you get into interesting conversations in the copy room where you work. Evidently. Thanks for that testimony, Christine. Uh, what we need to do as believers then is that we need to live at the level of our purpose. We need to live according to our purpose. We need to do whatever it takes to live according to the calling that God has given us because in our purpose lies our power. When we live purposefully, when we try to follow Jesus and minister our purpose into the world, then we find that we have all sorts of power to influence the world around us. I mean, we can influence the senior VPs, we can influence our neighbor, we can influence anyone if we live at the level of our purpose. If you forget your purpose, if you are not trying to push your purpose in the world, then you lose your power and you will feel disempowered. Spiritual Warfare 101. Uh, as a result, we must always be we must always be discipling in the world, which is to say we must always be bringing the message and we must always be bringing the faith uh, that we have. 
Uh, discipleship questions will work at any time with anyone. We talked about good questions to ask in the world. Jesus got his message out primarily by asking questions if you read through the gospel messages. So you can, again, be in the copy room where you work and say, hey, do you know what your purpose in life is? That's a great question. That's a question that everybody relates to. Everybody wants to have that conversation. There are other great questions as well. We've got four or five that we try to popularize around here just so that they're in your pocket uh, ready to go. Always be asking discipling questions and always get to the action step. Always eventually make invitations to action for the people that you're trying to influence because that's where it gets real, right? You can think, you can consider, you can converse, but when you do this, when you make a move in life, then the power just gets released, you know? For us, sometimes that means provoking the conversation. But to the people that we're conversing with, we have to say, hey, I've got an idea, do this. Or I've got an idea, come with me to this. You know, come with me to my Ohana group. Come with me to my church service where we talk about purpose most every Sunday. Come with me to the Christmas concert and get something of the spirit of life that you might be open to receiving at this time of year. Action steps, making invitations. In that process, the most contagious thing about you is your, is your attitude, right? It's the attitude that you manifest. If you've got a crappy attitude, that will be contagious. But if you've got a powerful faith attitude, then that will be contagious because attitude is always contagious. Attitude is your angle and your approach to things, so make sure that you're moving in the right attitude. It's the most contagious thing about you. Faith is an attitude. Faith is an angle to life. Faith is a way of approaching certain things. Faith is an attitude of power. Faith says, hey, something great can happen here. But this situation sucks. Yes, but something great can happen here. That is an empowering attitude. So, go with that. When you share your faith with someone, this is what we talked about last week, don't share about your faith. Share your faith which is to say, share that attitude, right? That's power. That is supernatural power. And that's the best thing you've got going for you, is to share the faith attitude that God gives you. Now, ultimately, anybody's attitude has to be anchored in truth. Ultimately, we do have to discuss why we have the faith that we have, you know, and then stuff like stories about Jesus are great. You know, then you have to talk about why, But the first thing you want to do is share faith itself. Why? Because the world is desperately afraid. And the attitude of faith that you have is the thing that opens every door. That's what gets you in. Uh, So share faith itself. And then later on you can share about why uh, you have it. Uh, Faith makes everything possible. Now by contrast to all of that, an attitude of disempowerment, a sense of disempowerment, or an attitude of fear leads to destruction. It leads to regression in life instead of progression in life. That's what we're going to talk about today. And of course we're going to talk about why, uh, what to do about that, but first we need to warm up. Don't we? So everybody roll your shoulders. Everybody do. Everybody do your calisthenics. All right. Everybody stand up. And I want you to pick a partner nearby to the left, to the right, uh, behind you, or in front of you. 
And for 15 seconds, I want you to share an attitude of power, faith, of empowerment. Share some power attitude. Go. It's awesome. All right, swap it. Make sure you're going the other direction too. Person A to person B, person B to person A. Get it done. Share faith. Share faith. Woo! All right, all right. Well done. Well done. Well done. That was really interesting. You know what I saw more than anything else? This is interesting. I saw tons of physical contact. <laughs> nothing, nothing quite communicates like that. There was a high density of high fives per minute. Uh, there were lots of hugs. Uh, it's, it's all very affirming stuff. Uh, I heard some woos. Um, but uh, a lot of you didn't know what to say, so you just were like, yeah. <laughs> that works. That's why I think you should go into work tomorrow morning, walk in, grab someone, and go, ah. you will have an influence. You might need to clarify later, but you will have an influence. Fantastic. All right, let's do something different now, a little exercise. Uh, again, I want everybody to stand up, and I want you to pick somebody next to you, uh, to the left, to the right, behind you, or in front of you, and I want you to share an attitude of disempowerment. All right? I want you to do whatever you can to make a disempowering atmosphere around you. All right? You got it? Everybody stand up. Share an attitude of disempowerment. You know how to do this. I guarantee it. An attitude of disempowerment. Spread it. That's not disempowering. You can't do it with a straight face, can you? awesome. All right, sit back down, sit back down. Give yourself a hand. But you're like, it's, it's already been disempowering. You're like, ah. how fun was that? It's like, yeah, man, that was my wheelhouse. I feel like that tapped into my spiritual gift right there. Now that was interesting. I saw a lot of physicality that time as well. But you know what I saw? A lot. This, this was genius. A lot of people just doing this. Just turning their back, uh, which I think is you know, a posture of disempowerment. What else did you do to disempower uh, the person to whom you were ministering? What did you do? You said negative things. Yeah, how many of you just started complaining about stuff? Oh, there's nothing like complaining to disempower. Right? Uh, what else did you do? Yeah, you just did that. You did nothing. That's very disempowering to do nothing. 
You expressed that you didn't like my request, so you complained about, about the pastor. Yeah. Did they, did they notice that you were trying to disempower them, or did they just think that's business as usual around here? Huh? You just got here, so that was your entry to welcome. I'm not as bad as, as she said. Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. Um, that's it, man. You're going to move in an attitude of empowerment, or you're going to move in an attitude of, of disempowerment. Or do you remember this one? Here's a saying that we've used in this sermon series. You can live at the level of your purpose, or you can live at the level of your struggle. You're going to do one or the other. And that's a daily choice uh, that a lot of us make. If we live at the level of our purpose, I think we are salt and light in the world. If we live at the level of our struggle, then I think probably we are going to um, spread an attitude of disempowerment whenever we go. And instinctively, I think you kind of know this to be true. And if you don't know it to be true of yourself, you do kind of know it to be true of the people around you. There are people around you who, for some reason, lift and empower the atmosphere uh, where they go. And then there are people around you who, for some reason, seem to harden or lower the atmosphere uh, wherever they go. Um, everybody has struggle. Let's be real about that. But everybody also has purpose, a God-given purpose, a calling from the Lord. And let's be real about that as well. And somewhere in that difference, I think, uh, lies a lot of faith, a lot of angle. Uh, empowerment uh, is an important thing to minister because the chaos of the world does a lot to make people feel disempowered. You know, more than anything else, I think the dark spirits uh, of the world wants you to feel like there's nothing that you can do about it. You know, that's, that's job one. And when people feel disempowered, they get scared. Or when they get scared, they feel disempowered. It works both ways. And this is why the scriptures are just filled with all of these basic statements of empowerment. Uh, we went through uh, a list of these uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we, uh, we took a good look at Second uh, Timothy uh, 1.17. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid or that the spirit that God gave us doesn't make us afraid. It gives us power, love, and self-discipline. You know, that's, that's how you can tell if you are moving with the spirit of God. You have a sense of power. You have a sense of love. Let me unpack that just slightly. You have a sense that you can do something about things. You have a sense of love, so you want to do something about things. And you have self-discipline which means that you will follow through on things. That's how you know if you're moving in the, in the spirit that God gives us. Philippians 4.13, a lot of us know this one. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's a very empowering statement. You know, means we can never say, oh, I can't. We never say I can't, do we? We don't say that. We say, I just can't handle that right now. That's what we say because that pill is easier for us to swallow. But it's equally as disempowering, you know. But you know, when Paul writes to the Philippians, he assures them, hey, we can do all things uh, through him who strengthens us. We got this. We got this. No matter what it is, uh, we got this. It's our job. 
It is our basic power in the Lord. First uh, John chapter 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So whatever is against, against you, our team is still going to win, right? We just have to stay in the game. We just have to keep at it. Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, I, no barrier can truly stand uh, because God is for us. And all we have to do is live according to the purpose that God gives us. In all situations, we are more than conquerors, we read in that same chapter. You know, there's, there's no situation that can uh, defeat us. Uh, not even death itself, as it turns out. And you can throw in the other grand statements of empowerment. Uh, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you will receive power to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. In other words, the spirit of power that I give you is a world-changing power. You have power within you to change the world. So of course you can change the atmosphere in the coffee, coffee room. Of course you can change the atmosphere in the seats around you. I mean, you could change the world, actually, given enough time and, and, and diligence. You are clothed with power from on high. I mean, we could go on and on and on. There are literally hundreds of these statements in Scripture. When we're scared and feel disempowered in life, though, we get stupid. We get stupid, and we forget our purpose. First and foremost, that's what, ha that's what happens to us. And then we reach for, for uh, quick and easy comforts, often sinful comforts. And that, that's troublesome when we do that. It's like, oh, everything is lost. Everything is, is uh, not awesome. And uh, I need some comfort here. You know, somebody's got to make me feel better uh, emotionally. Um, and uh, false comforts can really screw up a life really quickly, as many of us know. And if we're not reaching for false comforts, we're we reaching for what I call twisted empowerment. We're reaching for twisted ways of making ourselves feel really powerful, right? Because when we're scared, we want to feel powerful. That's comforting uh, as far as it goes. Um, so that can get us in trouble really fast if we reach for false sources of power. And this, it is remarkable to me, that the original lie in the world, uh, in human history, as far as we know, was about disempowerment. You know, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, whatever that was like, not really sure, but God gave them instruction, hey, don't eat of this tree. And then the deceiver came along and said to them, hey, the reason God told you not to eat of that tree is because he knows that when you do it, remember it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, when you do it, you will become powerful like he is. And God does not want you to feel, uh, to have power. God wants you to be disempowered, right? He's a controlling, disempowering God. And for some reason, Eve bought it, and then soon thereafter, Adam bought into it, and the rest is human history, right? We've been trying to recover from that ever since. You know, God is disempowering. Don't believe in him. Don't follow him. God is disempowering, the basic lie of human existence. The basic gospel, as Jesus preached it, is not only are you empowered, but the most disempowered people in society, I can empower them. God is empowering, not disempowering, the kingdom of God. 
uh, comes against. When you feel that you can't do it, or when you feel like you can't have it, and particularly when God won't let you have it, when you feel those things, then sometimes you opt to get it by sinful methods instead. You eat the fruit, whatever it happens to be uh, in, in your life. Uh, and we've, you know, went through a short lift, list uh, of these. I think, I think money worship or, you know, the scrambling for money that we see so often in the world is, is something that people do when they, they can't find their place in the world any other way. You know, money is power, money is security, all those things. I think uh, stuff like pornography is intimacy for those who feel disempowered with respect to intimacy in some fashion. So we reach for the quick comfort, the quick fix. Anger, I think, is influence for those who feel disempowered about changing their situations. So we get angry. We get outraged. Why? Because that's a very empowering emotion. When somebody is angry, people tend to respect them a little bit. If for no other reason than they're a little bit dangerous and uncomfortable. Cheap empowerment. So anger is, is very important to a lot of people for those reasons. Um, it's when we reach for untwisted, twisted empowerment that I think things get really uh, freaky. Um, we can do it relationally. You see this a lot. People who just feel disempowered relationally will make poor relational choices. They'll make poor romantic choices or poor sexual choices. Or they will decide to join in sinful behaviors in order to get accepted in whatever clique they want to be accepted in. Or they will use anger to bully people. People carry around a sense of mild outrage or an acerbic attitude, a negative attitude. Why? Because that tends to make them dominant in the room, right? When you voice a little anger, a little criticism, people almost have to respect that. Or most people are non-confrontational, so they don't want to fight against it. And it gives you a sense of place, you know, these twisted emotional games uh, that we play. Or maybe if we're relationally disempowered, we pursue an attitude of isolation. You know, we're, can't, we're not getting what we want relationally, so we decide this. Well, I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone. And if you're in my life, you're in, you're in my life on my terms, baby. Policy of isolation, twisted, just leads to destruction and sin if you follow it. But, you know, you recognize these games, right? This is what people do when they feel relationally disempowered. Or maybe people feel spiritually disempowered. They carry around some sort of shame, some sort of guilt. They're looking for, for some way to kind of compensate spiritually uh, for, for those disempowering emotions that they feel. So, so what they do is they grab for religion, or what I call a religious spirit. spirit. Not like good Jesus gospel religion, but, you know, what, what James, or um, the Bible sometimes calls uh, a spirit of religion or religiosity, it's the spirit that Jesus fought against whenever he argued with the Pharisees uh, in, in the Gospels. You know what the religious spirit is? A religious spirit is an obsession with getting things right. And then sometimes it comes across as a holier-than-thou attitude, which is, I am more right than you are. Okay. <laughs> What's going on there? Well, people want to feel secure, right? They want, to, they want to feel empowered. So we see a lot of that in the world. Uh, and then there's political or social um, disempowerment. 
and uh, our responses uh, to that. I think we see a lot of it today. People are feeling socially disempowered, and so we see a lot of what I call the politics of outrage. Have you seen any of that recently? <laughs> Maybe you have in recent national elections. Somebody has to be blamed and held to account because I'm feeling scared and disempowered. So doggone it. I'm going to be outraged. Are we going to compete? We're going to see who can be negative, who can be angrier. And that's how we're going to feel empowered. Maybe you've seen that. Maybe you haven't. You know, so-and-so is too lax on criminals or white men have too much privilege. That's what's wrong. And I'm going to be on the right side of that. And I'm going to be righter than you. And I'm going to feel really uh, empowered. And then we look for leaders that voice disempowerment, that voice our sense of disempowerment, instead of, I don't know, looking for leaders that might bring, I don't know, faith or something like that to the world. I don't know, maybe you can think of some examples. Uh, I, I don't comment on, on politics very much, but you know I have a PhD in political science. Did you know that? And so when I look at national elections, I tend to read them in a different way. Different things fascinate me about them. And this, this recent presidential election, I mean, whatever else might be said about it, the most fascinating uh, presidential election in, in recent times, because there is so much about it that was just so extreme and so weird. Uh, I would say, my my observations on it, that the disempowered majority elected Donald Trump. Surveys indicate that the majority of people that voted for Donald Trump don't like him. That's just mind-blowing. That's just mind-blowing. This was a presidential election of the two most disliked candidates ever in American history. It's just stunning. What was going on? What sort of social situation produces uh, an election like that. And I think what it is, it's a social situation that I would call disempowerment. And so we had this disempowered majority that elected Donald Trump to represent them. Why? What did he do to qualify? Well, he was angry. You know, I think even he would gladly admit that. Yeah, I'm angry. I'm angry. And people said, yes, me too. And anger is empowering. So let's go with that. Let's go with that. Um, and everybody was surprised, you know, everybody was surprised that Donald Trump got elected. The media was just blown away, often to the point of tears. Uh, you got to see a lot of anchor men and anchor women crying on election night, totally stunned, which tells me that the disempowered majority that elected Donald Trump was truly voiceless because nobody heard it beforehand. And voiceless people feel... Well, disempowered and angry, don't they? Everybody was surprised. Every poll got it wrong, pretty much, which tells you how voiceless those people were. And it wasn't the people that we typically think of as voiceless. Who is voiceless in American society? Well, you know, uh, oppressed minorities are, are voiceless, or um, you know, the poor are voiceless, or some, something like that. Uh, but in Donald Trump's case, it was, it was working-class people uh, that, that were voiceless. And this is just kind of a statistical reality. At least they felt voiceless. And, uh, and you know, it, it surprised everyone, which to a political scientist is just 
is just uh, really interesting, if nothing else. Uh, what swung the election uh, were the states Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, uh, where workers, and largely union workers, voted for Trump, uh, which wasn't supposed to happen. In fact, in past elections, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania were part of what they called the Blue Wall. Um, they were solidly democratic, and, and the Republican Party uh, could not break it. And so it was just it was a total surprise to people uh, that that should happen. Trump played to their disempowerment uh, by giving it a target. And, and Trump spent his campaign painting targets, right? Uh, who, who were the targets for the outrage of that silent majority? Well, you know, I don't know, liberal elites, right? Uh, they were uh, a target that Trump painted. Or cheaters. And some of the cheaters that Trump uh, brought forth were like, you know, illegal immigrants. You know, people that were in the country illegally and supposedly stealing jobs from working class, good Americans and, and stuff like that. And that became a huge public dialogue, uh, didn't it? Um, Trump said, well, cheaters. And then the Democrats said, well, you're a racist. That was the politics of outrage, right? Anger, anger, anger. Uh, and he played to the sense of sacrifice because... Uh, Rural people and working class Americans, they're the ones that send their sons and daughters into the military. And right now we are fighting a, a war mostly against, you know, terrorism or instability in different parts of the world. And so Trump talked about that a lot, didn't he? To honor the sacrifice of people who feel like they're carrying the burden of that war and they're angry about that. And so he played into that. He, it was a populist strategy if you understand that term. What was Hillary Clinton's problem? Well, she too played the politics of disempowerment, but who were her disempowered? Well, um, minorities in the classical sense, although some people say she just ignored uh, the black and Latino vote too much. I'm not sure about that. Uh, women, she was big on women's rights, and in the late stages of the election, uh, she affirmed her support for uh, what she called reproductive rights, particularly late-term abortion, so, um, which was a, an empowering thing for her to do in her mind. But of course, that made uh, moral conservatives and pro-life people feel disempowered. Um, so that kind of backfired on her. The most Trump-like candidate in the election, I think, was Bernie Sanders, who was a socialist oddly enough, who campaigned for the same working-class America, quote-unquote, that Donald Trump campaigned for. Um, medical care was an issue a little bit, and that Hillary Clinton campaigned for empowerment for those who don't have medical insurance, right? Or Obamacare thing. Um, but that was an unpopular policy in a lot of the electorate, so she had an uphill climb there. Um, but mostly, I think Hillary Clinton appealed to those who were scared of Trump. And so the election came down to who is the scariest? Right? Who's the most scary candidate? Does Trump scare you most, or does Hillary Clinton scare you most? Does Trump make you feel the most disempowered, or does Hillary Clinton make you feel the most disempowered? And then you voted against the person who made you feel the most disempowered. Right? By and large, I don't, I'm not saying that's how you voted, of course. I'm just saying statistically speaking, 
right? And you read the surveys and you go through the results. This is what it means. It was all about disempowerment. And whatever is all about disempowerment is going to have problematic outcomes. You know, disempowering outcomes. And of course, the thing to pray for now is, is that it, it morphs into empowering outcomes and that the contention simmers down so that, you know, creativity and construction can begin no matter who is in the White House. Fascinating election, but it just kind of shows me uh, whatever the outcome, whether you're happy about the outcome, not happy about the outcome, you're certainly going to pray for good outcomes, right? You're certainly going to do that. We're going to come together. We're going to be supportive, and, you know, we are going to be the people of purpose and peace. Um, but, uh, wow, there's so much fear and disempowerment. In America, the most prosperous and secure society the world has ever known. Fascinating. Just fascinating. And just goes to show you that we have an important mission as the people of God uh, in, in the world. Our message to the disempowered is a fairly powerful message. It is the message that has stood us in good stead since the very beginning, for over 20 centuries now. And so I don't want to veer away from it too much. What is our message to people who feel scared and disempowered? Well, here it is. This might sound familiar to you. Uh, three steps for discipling the disempowered. Number one, share faith. And when I say share faith, I mean share faith itself. Right? That's the first step. Later on, you might share about faith or about why you believe. But what you need to do right now is to share faith. Because I can tell you, at least on the national level, there ain't much faith out there. There's a lot of fear and there's a lot of disempowerment. There's not a lot of empowerment attitude uh, in the national discourse. There are wonderful pockets of it, which I appreciate very much. But that's not, what, that's not what's being popularized in, in America, right? Uh, on the eve of the election and post-election, I know uh, from my networks that there have been, you know, hundreds of simple, peaceful, honest-hearted prayer vigils for the nation. Prayer, you know, in churches about the election, about the outcome of the election, about going forward. How many of those have you read about in the national media? Now, when somebody spray paints a swastika on the subway wall, how many stories about that have you read in the national media? Right? Outrage is what gets the headlines, not purpose and peace. So that's what I mean by the discourse is dominated by disempowerment. Uh, and so what people really need is faith attitude, not negative attitude, not complaint attitude, not all that nonsense that you shared with one another in that silly exercise, not back turning and stuff like that. But faith has never been more valuable to people because they have everything else in life what they don't have is faith again the most prosperous secure society the world has ever known but no faith you know there are tragedies and conflicts out there that are real but with faith I think we'd probably be able to handle them so share faith itself number two help people discover their purpose because that's what makes people feel empowered. In your purpose lies your power. 
right? And so when people don't know what their purpose is, no matter what else you do, they will still feel disempowered. No matter how many services they get, no matter how many rights are secured, they will always feel disempowered when they don't have a sense of personal purpose. Always. And so we have to be good at that. You know, we have to disciple everyone around us into their God-given purpose. When Jesus calls a person, he always calls the person to purpose. He never says, agree with me. He always says, follow me. Let's do something together. People need a sense of purpose, and we need to get really good at that. I love Christine's testimony so much. You know what your purpose is. One of the most evangelistic things you could ever say in the world. Because I know where your purpose comes from. And I might even have a good idea of what it is. And it just makes you salt and light. Everybody needs to know their purpose. You know, that's what makes people feel empowered. Everyone has a purpose. And you can live according to your purpose or you can live according to your struggle. I know which works. Your choice. Make a good one. And then share faith. Uh, you address purpose. And then you do this thing called disciple. You, you disciple people. Together, we follow up and follow through. And that's, that's what people need help with, help with. That's why they need an ohana. That's why they need a church community. That's why they need an ohana group. That's why they need you. It's because everybody needs d- discipleship. Everybody needs uh, what does the Spirit of God give us according to 2 Timothy 1.7. Uh, not timidity. <laughs> sense of power. And it's love. And what's the other one? Self-discipline, uh, a, sound, a sound mind, or you know, the ability to sort of go through life in a disciplined fashion. I'm all for self-discipline. It's one of my big things in life. I'm sort of a fanatic about self-discipline. Uh, but the thing that helps my self-discipline more than anything else is other people. <laughs> I need help with my self-discipline. And so do you. You need someone to follow up. And you need to follow through. And everybody in the world needs that because people leave things 50% done most of the time. They'll have a good conversation. They will agree with what you say, but they will not take action. And that's where you come in. You become the hound of heaven. You become a discipler. When should we be discipling? Always be discipling. And that's it. Those are all points that we have shared before. But they work really well with disempowered people, which is kind of like saying they work really well with people. Because everybody's scared, everybody's disempowered, and everybody wants to give in to it and be outraged. Sometimes, if you're going through a difficult time in life, I can help provide for you. And the people of God should be ridiculously generous. But mostly, I want to help you be you. Because God didn't give you a spirit of disempowerment, of fear. You know, God gave you power and love and discipline. And if I can help you be that, you know, we can, change, we can change the world. Of course, I will help provide for you in other ways if I can. But mostly, I want to help you be you. And, and I suggest that mission to you. I suggest that that's one thing that you can do for the people around you. You know, there are cheap ways to do that. You know, I want to help you be you. So what I will do is help you accept you. Well, I mean, yes and no. Um, 
you are a glorious creature, uh, and you possess a God-given purpose. But that doesn't mean that everything about you is right on, or that everything about your life is right on, and you probably know that. You probably know that. So I just want a fuller version of you, right? Kind of a midwife. Let's birth it out, you know, because there are great things that the Lord has put in there. I can provide for you sometimes, but mostly I want to help you be you. And you are not purposeless, and you are not powerless. And honestly, I don't think government affects that much one way or the other. You know, there's more to us than our political positions. I like to think that I have a message that transcends politics, that transcends social order of all kind. And historically, I think I am borne out on this because I have seen the gospel message succeed over the last 2,000 years in every political system there is, in every social environment that we can imagine. God has reached people and given them purpose and turned them into amazing creatures all over the world. There is nothing about the American political situation that alarms me to the level such that I cannot be who I am in Christ. In fact, I think we have a pretty good thing going, generally. And if I can't do it here, then what makes me think that I'm going to do it in, you know, a situation of slavery or true oppression like we have seen so often in history? I'm going to change the world. And I'm going to do it by changing people. You know, and in a democracy, you know what? Government is only good as the people that vote anyway. I'm going to change the people. I'm going to make people of purpose. I'm going to make people of love. I'm going to make people of follow through and follow up. That's what I'm going to do. That's what Jesus recommends, and that's what you're going to do. That's what eight of you are going to do. Fantastic. <laughs> Jesus had 12. I have eight, but, you know, it will take me 33% longer to get my job done. Um, we have good news, don't we? We have good news for the poor. We have good news for the oppressed. We have good news for the outraged. We have good news for the scared and the vulnerable. We have good news, don't we? And read through the Bible sometime and just um, mark the number of times that the Lord speaks to people who felt disempowered and the number of times he turned them into powerful characters. You know, the woman at the well who had to go to the well at midday because she had such a poor social reputation in her village, she couldn't go in the cool of the morning with the other women. Jesus turned her into the first foreign evangelist. She ended up taking the gospel to her entire village. That was a powerful encounter with a Samaritan woman of ill repute. Gideon, who was so cowardly uh, when the Lord first prompted him to become a military leader that he literally hid and he became one of the greatest military leaders that Israel had ever seen. Jeremiah, who as a child received a, a message from the Lord that he would be a prophet that would, that would um, establish and tear down nations. And he was just a kid. He said, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm not ready for that. And the Lord said to him, do you remember this line? Um, if you are terrified by them, uh, beware that I will terrify you before them. <laughs> like, come on, son. We're not going to move in fear. We're not going to move in fear. I just 
some that come to mind, the fishermen that changed the world by becoming the apostles. Um, you know, Mary, who was a prostitute and was turned into one of the chief apostles and church planters of the early church. We got good news for the poor. I don't know how empowered you feel these days. I don't know how disempowered you feel, but I know that you are a person of purpose. And I just want to take 30 seconds here in quiet and let the Lord affirm that. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you come upon the crowd. And I pray, Lord, that you would appoint to the barriers that are not barriers. I pray that you would point to the outrage that is really just a frustration with purposelessness and that you would breathe life into the purpose that will make a way in that place. I pray, Lord, that you will speak to people who feel relationally disempowered and you will give them a spirit of love and empowerment in Jesus' name. Come, Holy Spirit, we're listening and receiving. Where has the enemy made you feel disempowered? Don't allow it. All right. Amen. Let's finish this way. I'm going to ask you all to stand up. I'm going to ask you to turn to a partner to your left, to your right. Uh, in back of you or in front of you, and I want you to share an attitude of faith and empowerment and send people on their way with some faith and a blessing. Let the people of God be the people of God. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>